welcome back to day three of the 2019 Hormone Summit. I am Christine Garvin, and wow, what a week it's been so far, right? I've just been blown away with the incredible information that we've gotten from our guests. Like, I just, it, it's been so great for me, so I hope that the same has been true for you. But I'm particularly excited about today's guest um, because of the personal impact that she's had in my life over the last few months. So her name is Nicole Jardim, and she's also known as the period girl, and we'll get into why here in just a second. But I came across Nicole's work uh, probably about two years ago for the first time, and I started following her, and that was really when I first started to understand crazily at age, you know, 37, 38, about the impact of hormones just on my life um, as things started to shift and change. And of course, you know, most of you know that I went through a pretty traumatic experience last year with getting a fibroid removed and then having multiple surgeries after that. And so really my big thing was after that, I was like, I need to balance my hormones. I need to figure this out. And it was very serendipitous timing because Nicole actually announced her apprenticeship right when I was desperately looking for something to help. And the crazy thing was, she was like, I'm not, I'm not actually sure I'm going to be able to do it this year because she was knee deep in this book writing process that um, actually will be coming out next year. And I'm so excited about it. But she yeah, didn't know she was going to do it. And I was like, oh my God, you have to do it. You have to do it. And thank God she sent out an email that she was doing it. And I was like, woo. And so I just have to tell you that it was such an incredible, incredible experience to do this apprenticeship with her because she's so knowledgeable. She's so down to earth and so hardworking. It kind of blows my mind. And she's helped literally hundreds of thousands of women around the world with her work. So she has a couple of programs called um, Fix Your Period. And that's why she's known as a period girl because she can really help you Get out of the struggle that you've been having with your period and your hormones. And she also co-hosts an incredible podcast. It's actually my favorite hormone podcast called The Period Party. And every time they have, you know, a guest on there, I'm just blown away with the information. So before I can, I could go on and on forever about her, but today we're actually going to tackle something that I really wanted to talk to her about because so many women deal with this at least once in their life. It's literally not every month. And she's going to dispel a lot of myths and um, give us some really good information about it. And that is the dreaded PMS. (laughs) So thank you, Nicole, so much for being here. Oh my gosh, Christine, I'm just cracking up because I feel like I need to call you every morning so you can say what you just said. (laughs) Talk about it. Boosting a girl's ego. Thank you. Thank you for that. All true. Oh my gosh. Seriously. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm just like beaming over here. Seriously. (laughs) Thank you. I so appreciate you saying all those nice things. Yes. Oh my gosh. PMS. Yeah. <laughs> we totally so, talked about it. Yeah, I know, right? Everybody's like, oh, great PMS. But literally everybody's like, just thinks that this is a normal thing for us to have, right? That it's just yes. part of being a woman. So can you start just at the beginning? Like, you know, a lot of pe- people don't even quite understand like what PMS is and, you know, how it comes to be. So can you tell us about that? Yes. I, you know, I want to preface it by saying that 
um, this is, you know, considered a syndrome. So it's premenstrual syndrome. And then there's premenstrual tension or PMT. So it's another, that's other terminology for it. And it refers to a collection of physical and psychological symptoms that arise in a cyclical pattern, right? Or on a cyclical um, in like a cyclical nature. And they, they, they coincide with the second half of your menstrual cycle. And so that's known as the luteal phase. And so these symptoms are usually anywhere, like people would experience them anywhere from like two to maybe 10 days before their period begins. And in most cases, they resolve when your period actually starts. And so a lot of women will say that to me. They'll say that they uh, have all of these raging symptoms. You know, it's just like saying things they shouldn't say and <laughs> eating tubs of ice cream. Um, you know, like your partner never knows whether angry you or happy you is going to walk in the door. All those things. And, but, and when their period comes, they're just like, oh my God, relief. So yeah. That's, you know, that's really what PMS is from, you know, from a non-medical perspective, I suppose you could say. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important for us to understand too, that PMS or PMS symptoms affect approximately half of all women worldwide. That's what the literature says. And in a number of studies, they talk about the fact that roughly 91% of women at least one PMS symptom each month. Right. I was like, that sounds a little bit more dead on than 91%, right? Right, 91%, I know. I think like what is really interesting about premenstrual syndrome, and I'm going to get into PMDD, which is premenstrual yes. disorder. I'll talk about that. Right. But I think what's really interesting is that we, you know, first of all, culturally, like you said, right, this women don't even think that this is an, a real thing. They just think that this is just sort of their hormones acting crazy and it's causing them to have these problems. But ultimately, when you think about it, um, you know, it, it, it has been characterized as a syndrome. It's very difficult to diagnose, right? Because there are so many different symptoms associated with it and they can be very erratic and some months you might feel okay and then others you might not feel okay at all. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, again, in, from a medical perspective, it's difficult to diagnose. And so when I think about, you know, PMS um, and whether it's considered a legitimate condition or not, of course it is, right? Your symptoms are legitimate, but is it, do we at collectively have, um, you know, have bodies that were designed to experience these symptoms and how and the I, I and the extent of the symptoms every single month i'm not so sure right. like i i really think that pms is on a spectrum and so it depends very much on what's happening you know in your life and with your diet and all of these different factors that play into you know all aspects of your health why wouldn't they play into something like this as well right so that's you know that's a big part of this i think do you think that women used to experience PMS as bad, you know, 20, 40, 60 years ago? I mean, I know it's hard to say because there's not a lot of literature out there, but. Yeah, no, I think that's such a great question. I've really, I've thought about that long and hard and I, I have no doubt that women experience these symptoms. I guess my point is, is that I, I like to think of PMS as 
premenstrual changes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, there's, there's a great website, it's called Menstrual Matters. And um, the researcher who runs it, she writes extensively about this stuff. And so she's talked about these premenstrual changes. And I really like this idea. I like mm-hmm. the idea of describing it as that rather than you know, so many of us have this syndrome and of course, all of the negative societal connotations that come with that. And so how, you know, it's more along the lines of like looking at this as a spectrum, like I was saying, and what are the changes that are happening every single month and how, how extreme are they? Like how extreme are your moods or how extreme is your bloating or your breast tenderness or breast pain? So how can you measure those based on, um, the symptoms that you've had in previous months. And the best way to do that, of course, is take, you know, taking charge of your health, tracking your cycle, really understanding what's happening on a cyclical basis for you individually. Yeah. Because, yeah, you could go to a doctor and they may diagnose you potentially based on the, the guidelines that are current, like currently out there. Um, or you could just say that, you know, these symptoms may be reflective of what's going on with my overall health. It's just like, you know, what we've talked about so much, right? That this idea that your period is your fifth vital sign and it's a, it's a def, it's like a barometer of what's happening with your health. Um, it's the same for PMS. PMS symptoms are coupled with that. And so I, I feel like that's, that's really something that, that we, as if we're as PMS sufferers need to start to reflect on and take action around. Right. And our society as we know, you know, this connects us so much from our body and particularly our period and PMS and puts it in this box. And so I love that you brought that up about the fifth vital sign because I don't think that a lot of women think of it that way. Or maybe, you know, they're just starting to understand that a little bit now and how, yeah, um, yeah that barometer, you know, and we have, we have a lot of um, abilities to shift and change things as we make changes in our lives. So can you speak to it kind of from a medical perspective of, you know, I feel like I understand it more deeply in my body now since I'm getting near or in perimenopause, it's hard to say, you know, Um, but I feel that drop off of progesterone, right? And it's crazy because in tracking my cycle, like, I feel it now, like where, you know, you're supposed to have your highest progesterone. I'm great. And then literally the next day I'm like, it goes down, you know, like I can feel it in my body. And so, you know, even if you're 21 or something, like what is happening in terms of your hormones when you start experiencing PMS? Yeah, I, you know, I did want to, I'll get into that in just a second. I did just want to mention premenstrual dysphoric disorder because oh, yes. yeah. that ties in as well. And so for anyone who doesn't really know what that is, it's, you know, they call it PMDD for short. And I, you know, I, not jokingly, but you know, I, you got to add a little bit of fun to this because these are serious conditions and they're, and they're really hard for a lot of women every single month. So um, you know, I joke that PMS is bigger, badder sister, and it really is that, right? So it's considered a severe mood disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's characterized by pretty significant emotional and physical symptoms that occur, um, you know, in the one to two weeks before your period. And I was um, chatting with Dr. Lara Bryden the other day, and we were talking about PMS versus PMDD, and she was just saying that, you know, with PMDD, uh, you know, it's it's really it's what it might, it, it usually starts like at the beginning, right? So right after ovulation happens and until the end of your luteal phase, so that's where you know, PMDD shows up typically. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. And that it's like you said, right? That estrogen drop off right after you ovulate and progesterone hasn't quite kicked in yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of it for sure. Mm-hmm. And so like I said, PMDD is just a more severe form of, of PMS. And, you know, it's not really just a matter of, you know, feeling a little bitchy every month. It really is much more comparable to uh, debilitating actually. And sometimes even traumatic symptoms that really impact a person's relationships, their careers, uh, you know, their, their life, their mental well-being, And like I was saying, you know, these, these symptoms really can range in severity because they are, you know, highly influenced by so many external factors, like we were saying, right? Like nutritional deficiencies, uh, genetic factors, even our gut health, our blood sugar, um, that any kind of excess psychological stress past what your threat stress threshold is, you know, there's, and then of course that, that those all create, um, hormonal upheaval in our bodies. And so that's where, you know, we run into these problems. So it really almost requires us to look on a deeper level, deeper and deeper <laughs> to figure out what it is in our life or our lives that is, that are triggering, um, you know, these hormonal imbalances or this hormonal cascade to happen. Mm-hmm. So yes. So anyways, that's PMDD. Right. And I totally don't remember the question you asked me. <laughs> That's all right. No, I'm really glad you went into PMDD because I think this is something that people have just started hearing about and don't yes. understand. So thank you for that explanation of it because I think that'll help a lot of women out. Um, I was curious just from the, you know, from the hormonal medical perspective, yeah. um, what happens, you know, yeah, post ovulation and um, yeah, what, what your hormones are going through at that point. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Good question. <laughs> I knew, I, I felt, I was like, I know it's something to do with hormones. Yeah. Um, what writing a book will do to you. Oh my God. I I'm like, I, my ability to remember songs from the nineties is still very much on point, but remember what you just asked me 10 minutes ago and I have no recollection. Listen, I can like sing new kids on the block songs from when I was in sixth grade, like haven't heard them in years. And I'm like, yeah, I got it. And I'm like, seriously, what, what did I do yesterday? I can't even remember. Yeah. It's, I guess we're, we should be glad the long-term memory is not shot. Right. Yes. I, I, yes. I, I feel, I feel comfort in that, I guess. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So yeah, so coming back to hormones and, and what's happening with PMS and just generally speaking, I you know, I think that it's it's so great for us to understand that there are, you know, our hormones are cyclical. We have a cycle. That's what a menstrual cycle is. And this menstrual cycle is driven by the cyclicity of these these hormones, this hormone production. And usually, you know, when I'm talking about that, we're talking about estrogen or estradiol, which is the more prominent hormone when we're still cycling, um, or prominent estrogen, that is. We have progesterone. We have testosterone that plays a role too. Anti-malarian hormone plays a role in our cycle. FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone or LH, all of these hormones come together, kind of a juggling act. (laughs) Somehow they figure out how to make this whole ovulation thing happen and then for you to get your period every month. And so when it comes to something like PMS or even PMDD, uh, you know, there are so many factors that influence it, like I said. And so when we're thinking about what's happening with our hormones, we have a real buildup in the first half of our cycle, right? So your uh, your body is basically preparing a follicle that contains an egg that is going to be released mm-hmm. in this 
amazing thing called ovulation. <laughs> it's kind of like a volcano. And, um, you know, and like we're, it's just building and building. And what I have found is that, you know, in that first half of the cycle, life is great. <laughs> Things are pretty good for the most part. Not They're for right everyone. Now, Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I just ovulated. So I'm kind of I'm just like at that right over the hump. And thank God. I know. I was like, oh, yes. I still, I'm, you know, I've got my good vibes going for this interview. Um, yeah, it's like, don't try it. Ladies, don't do an interview the day before your period. That is definitely two cents out of all of this. But, you know, what's happening is you've had this huge buildup, right? So you've had estrogen building, you've had testosterone building, you have had, um, you you know, FSH and LH were also playing a role in all of this, but those two estrogen and testosterone, those are really going to, you know, make your, they're going to help your mood. So they really do support your mood. In fact, estrogen is very much interconnected with serotonin production. So there's there are definitely mood things happening. And also estrogen helps with blood sugar, which is, you know, something I want to talk about. And so when we, we cross the, the, pref, the, um, yeah, we hit the crescendo, I suppose you could say, and then cross over and we move into progesterone territory. This is where a lot of us tend to run into problems. And so um, I think the first thing is um, that blood sugar thing that I mentioned. So estrogen helps with insulin sensitivity in the first half of your cycle. Progesterone doesn't necessarily have a negative effect on it, but what I have found is that when we're eating high sugar foods um, in that second half of our cycle, progesterone has a blood sugar lowering uh, capacity. And so it'll, it'll lower those high levels of blood sugar too much. And so you have a, a bigger crash. So it's, you know, I, I liken, I joke sometimes. Again, I have jokes because I feel like, you know, this is serious. We got to all like jokes are good. (laughs) They're good. But like, I do kind of liken PMS to being hangry and that, you know, there are a lot of symptoms that are overlapping. And so if we take a look at what is going on with our blood sugar, we might find a lot of answers (laughs) in there. Um, So that's, you know, that's one thing that I found across the board seems to be happening is that rise in progesterone causes these blood sugar dips to be more significant, causing an increase in these kinds of symptoms. And then the second thing is, like I said before, estrogen is tied to serotonin, right? So when estrogen drops off after ovulation, and it's a pretty precipitous drop, just so everyone knows, um, it'll rise again in the second you know, half of your cycle. It actually rises in a sort of a last-ditch effort to help um, your body prepare in case you fertilized an egg. Um, but yeah, these mood mood boosting on neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, these kind of go down with estrogen as well, right? And that will aggravate the problem that a lot of women experience. And, you know, these PMS-like or even PMDD symptoms. And even if you're, what I've noticed too as well, again, I don't know that there's research on this. I've done a lot of research and I can't seem to necessarily find this, but what I find is that if you're estrogen dominant, meaning that you're in a state of estrogen excess over your progesterone levels, because these are sister hormones, right? They got to play nice in the sandbox. So when they're, yeah. So when estrogen tends to be higher in relation to progesterone, um, that dip or that estrogen crash seems to be more enhanced. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah. Like yeah. that, that, so that's something I've seen a lot of. It was definitely my own experience. And once I started to get estrogen under control, um, that seemed to really help matters. And I've seen that with plenty of my clients over the years as well. And again, that might not just be the estrogen dominant state, right? It might be what's going on with inflammation, what's going on with your blood sugar. All of it is tied in together. I always joke like, you know, it's women say, what's one tip you can give me (laughs) to fix my period? I'm like, well, you got your liver and your gut health and your blood sugar and what's going on with your thyroid and talk to me about your diet and your stress, you know. Never mind. Right. Oh my God. I know. It's just like, we're, we can't, where do we even begin? But it's, you know, so these are, I think that these are important things for people to remember that this, you know, this drop in estrogen may be problematic. And then of course, in many cases too, we might be in a low progesterone state, right? We might be progesterone deficient and progesterone is the keep calm and carry on hormone, right? Like it is just gonna, it's going to chill you out in that second half of your cycle, if you have sufficient levels of it. And many cases we don't. And in some cases, women are progesterone, are are progesterone, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Resistant, that's it, like insulin resistance. You may have progesterone resistance. That is a very common trait in women who have endometriosis. And again, there's a a lot of women who have endometriosis also have estrogen dominance and then this progesterone resistance. So I'm, I'm very curious about progesterone resistance when it comes to PMDD and PMS. Uh, again, like there just needs to be more research done on this kind of thing. But yeah, so it, we may not feel the full positive effects, right, of progesterone in that second half of our cycle. So I find that these are kinds of the kind, these are the kinds of things that are happening in this second half to cause these symptoms that we might experience. That's amazing. I definitely learned some things in there. That's really interesting about the estrogen dominance um, situation because, you know, obviously most women going into perimenopause have that coming up, but estrogen dominance has also taken over for younger women too, in a lot of cases, right? For a million of reasons, but, you know, including xenoestrogens and everything that's in our environment and, um, and our stress and all those kinds of things. And so that, that drop off, if you do have estrogen dominance and then that like drop off of estrogen, like impacting you more makes a lot of sense to me, you know, like it's so, it's all like intertwined in such a crazy way. But, um, so can you tell me a little bit more about this progesterone resistant? You said progesterone resistance. I haven't yeah. heard about this before. And I'm so I'm really curious about yeah. that. It's, it's really interesting because again, like there isn't a whole lot of research and, um, you know, I'm just basing it on, on things that I've learned, especially with researching the book and especially as it relates to estrogen, uh, or sorry, <laughs> endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And so this, progesterone resistance, like, you know, when you think about insulin resistance, right, because that's an example a lot of people know about, really what that means is that your cells are no longer responding to insulin, right, Right. in the way that they're supposed to, meaning that they're supposed to take blood sugar into the cells, and it's supposed to then be sent to your brain, because brain thrives on glucose, it's their number one, it's the brain's number one food. And so I I kind of liken progesterone resistance to that in a way, where we're no longer um, responding, like our our cells, the the receptor on the cell is not responding to progesterone for whatever reason. And my understanding of it is that it's very much linked to an inflammatory response. So inflammation happening in the body. And when you think about 
PMS and PMDD, you know, they're, they're technically characterized as, well, PMDD for sure, is characterized as a brain disorder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is something that I was writing about in my book, and I feel like I still need to fine tune it a little bit because I'm really trying to understand because there isn't a whole lot of science around this, mm-hmm. but this idea that for depression, for instance, and a number of other men, you know, mental disorders are linked back to inflammation in the body, right? So brain inflammation, gut inflammation, and between the gut brain axis, you know, they're both communicating bi-directionally all the time. And, um, you know, I'm just fascinated by this idea that if we are inflamed, then, uh, you know, we may experience PMS symptoms and it may very well be connected to PMDD. I saw super preliminary research about the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that runs from your brainstem all the way through your body, but it connects your gut in particular. Uh, There being um, some sort of vagus nerve dysfunction (laughs) in women who have PMS and PMDD, which I thought was fascinating. And so, you know, it really does come back to your gut in so many instances. And so again, I think progesterone resistance just ties into all of that. Although again, I think that we just need more more of the research on it. Um, I know a woman who has, it's called cyclical vomiting syndrome. And somehow it's, it's related to hormones. Well, to the extent that they put her on a hormonal, it, I don't know if it's depo. It's, it's, it's a shot, you know, that she has to get. And it's the only thing that keeps her from like vomiting just crazy all the time. Right. And, um, and she's been on it. I mean, she's yeah in her thirties now. And I think she was like 19 when she, you know, first figured it out. But I recently read a thing about the vagus nerve being connected to cyclical vomiting syndrome. And so that, you know, makes a lot of sense when you bring that up and it's just like, yeah, this, this brain gut connection that we have going on that we are just sort of on the precipice of figuring out, you know, how it can impact us in so many ways. Um, So, yeah, I mean, even thinking about, is that something that you think to like talk to women about in terms of like working with our vagus nerve? I mean, is that, is that part of the process? It's so interesting because first, first of all, I've never heard of cyclical vomiting syndrome. It's, this is fascinating it's to me. I'm assuming, it's not common for sure. Yeah, I'm sure it isn't. <laughs> I mean, but I imagine that it, I'm assuming she that she's throwing up towards the end of her cycle. Is that what? Yeah, I don't know if I don't know those that specific enough because she's been right. on it so long, so she doesn't. You know, but they definitely they tell her it's hormone related. You know, right. Well, I mean, you know, nausea and vomiting are part of the PMS mm-hmm. um, yeah, syndrome yeah. symptoms. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, that is really fascinating. And um, I actually had a client once who uh, she, w- she also was, had not vomiting, but she had symptoms that were completely out of control or felt completely out of her control, you know, towards the end of her cycle. She was also put on an injection and, you know, it, it essentially – my understanding was that it's just like, it's almost like a birth control injection. So it just lines your hormones. Right. So you stop ovulating and you don't have the, um, that cyclical hormonal flux anymore. Yeah. 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 It's so fascinating. Um, going back to the progesterone resistance, I was curious as you were talking about it. So do you think if someone has been on birth control and then gets off birth control, like especially progestin, you know, based birth control, like, thinking about the insulin resistance idea, like if your cells are resistant 
to progesterone. Is that, right. is that partly because, be because of the progestins that have been coming that's in a, and <laughs> taking, taking over? That's a really interesting question. It's so interesting because um, that I don't know. Like, I actually am not sure whether birth control can have that impact. Now I'm going to go look it up and see. <laughs> Potentially, I do wonder about that, right? Because when you think about xenoestrogens and these, you know, xenoestrogens for anyone who doesn't know are estrogens that are, you know, come from outside of your body, right? So they could be uh, very potent ones that come from chemicals like BPA, or they can be something like flaxseed or soy. So, you know, it, it ranges. But when I think about the fact that they are what we call estrogen mimickers, I do wonder yeah. um, whether there's a potential for that, but that at the same time, progestin, the actual molecular structure of a progestin isn't very, isn't super similar to progesterone. So again, I'm not sure. Although I don't know what the molecular structure of a xenoestrogen is either. So who's to say, right? Yeah. That it isn't potentially, you know, blocking the receptors, yeah. the progesterone receptors. It's fascinating. We have so much in our life, in our environment. We have no idea how it really impacts us, right? We just like we're like guinea pigs, isn't it crazy? Yeah, and it's like every day there's like ten thousand new chemicals introduced or whatever it is, you know? Yes. Ah. Woo. Okay. So now that we've kind of covered, you know, um, sort of the science of it, and um, you know, kind of the, some of the feelings of it, what are I'm going to ask you the question. What is some of the first things that you recommend to clients to do? Like where, where kind of do you start in, yes. in this healing process? No. And it's such a great question, right? Because we, we all want to know what we can do about that. Right. And that's all the science is nice, but tell me what the hell I can do. Right. Yeah. I know. Seriously. I know. I love to talk about the science. I get carried away. So, but I, I agree with you. And we so. have to, we got to start somewhere. Yeah. And you know, when I first got into the whole health coaching thing, I remember just, you know, thinking about how crappy I'd feel if I ate a piece of cake or I skipped a meal. You know, I never really thought it was that big of a deal. Like, you know, I didn't feel great, but I definitely didn't think it was super stressful on my body, much less my ovarian function. So I, you know, I really keep coming back to the fact that we have to figure out what's happening with our blood sugar. And this takes a little bit of biohacking and it, you know, it takes some diligence, but at the end of the day, like I said, when, uh, you know, in that first half of our cycle, things tend to be okay for many of us because estrogen is building. It helps to, it helps to sensitize us to insulin. So we don't have these huge swings that we may experience in the second half of our cycle. And then of course we get into the luteal phase and things change significantly. But when it comes to these kinds of symptoms, like I said, we have so much control over them. In fact, much more than I think we've been really led to believe. And so looking at your blood sugar as a first step is to me like the most crucial part of it, right? And so when I'm talking about that, I'm saying to you, what is it that you're eating, you know, every single meal that is potentially causing your blood sugar to go up too high? Because what happens is when it goes up too high, higher than your body is, is normally accustomed to, then your body's just going to make a whole lot of insulin to bring all of that high blood sugar out of your blood straight into your cells so that it can be either utilized or stored for later usage. And so when we have that, when the insulin does that, it, it resolves, it results in this um, major drop that we have, right? So we have this subsequent drop and that causes, you know, 
this cycle of blood sugar imbalance and ultimately leads to insulin resistance and potentially diabetes. It's connected to polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, it's even connected to conditions like Alzheimer's. I mean, it's really, you know, it's far reaching. And so this is where I, I ask women to start to look at that. Like, and one of the easiest things to do really is to look at your sugar consumption and your alcohol consumption. I know. Yeah. Damn it. It's like, <laughs> oh, I know. The cultural narrative around alcohol is very strong, right? We just need it to get through life. So I get it. But I think that that's really where we have to start. And, you know, there are blood sugar balancing supplements. You know, there's all kinds of things we can do. But I, I ask women to take a hard look at this stuff. And it's, it's not like, you know, the, it's not easy work, like this balancing your hormones thing, as you well know, Christine. <laughs> Like you've really been through it. And I know listeners are going to have, you know, know about your story too. But I think ultimately that's the first place we have to start. And so when you're, when I say that, I'm talking about let's just look at what's happening with sugar consumption. How much are you having? Uh, how much alcohol are you having? What are you, what's going on with refined carbohydrates in your life? So all of those are, if you start to really look at your consumption of those, I feel like they're going to make it, it's going to make a huge difference in how uh, your blood sugar stabilizes itself or doesn't. And also what your moods and um, your emotional symptoms are going to be like as well. Yeah. And so I, I always request women to start with, just start with breakfast. Just think one meal a day. Even if you, you know, I, I had a client once who basically was eating a brownie from Starbucks and a, a large coffee every single morning. And she was like, I'm completely addicted. I cannot stop. I don't know what to do. And eventually, literally, we were on the phone almost every single morning. Wow. <laughs> I was like, you're, you're not going to have the brownie. Let's this. Through this. <laughs> yeah, let's try. Let's literally try half decaf, half caffeinated coffee. Yeah. That's literally where we started. And then slowly but surely, we progressed to the point where she was having um, a breakfast with protein, fat, carbohydrates, uh, what that is, you know, like eggs, um, maybe some sweet potato, greens of some kind, or, you know, some kind of cruciferous vegetables like broccoli or cabbage. Uh, and, you know, yeah, that's, yeah, basically it. Maybe some bacon if you want it or some kind of sausage, something like that. So she was get, got to the point where she was having that. Her shift in her PMS symptoms, because she was really struggling was remarkable. And so I just asked women to try starting there. I mean, like if you're, if you feel inclined to make the changes, just the, some of the smallest things that you do, chewing your food, yeah. I mean, just how your food digests so that your body can assimilate nutrients better. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's potentially life-changing yeah. and yet it, it doesn't have to be that hard. Right. And as you know, I think that the sort of the conventional medical perspective is that or the current paradigm is that uh, it's really complicated. Let's not test your because it doesn't really mean anything. It's all too complicated. Right. And, or it's just that your, yeah, your body is kind of a mystery and I'm just going to either, you know, give you a medication of some kind and send you on your way. And we, we have to be in charge of our own healing at this point, as far as I'm concerned, because you know this, multiple women come to us almost every single day saying that they are just not getting the answers that they need. And they know in their gut that there's something else or there's another way. And so I think it's up to us to just start to make these small shifts. Wow. So I would suggest that. And I 
would just say two. Oh, sorry. You go ahead. I didn't know if you had a, a oh, thought on this. Well, what, what I was thinking when you were talking, you know, it, it's, it's interesting too. just like, I mean, there's extremes across the U S and in, in food availability and those kinds of things, you know, but I live in Asheville mm-hmm. where it's, um, foodtopia or whatever. And there's a lot of places that will have like gluten-free dairy-free treats. Right. Um, but people kind of see those as okay to eat because they're gluten-free and dairy-free, but they're still refined carbohydrates and sugar in them too, you know? And so there's also an education, I think, that happens just on that basic level too, you know, like, um, we have all these things now that can seem healthy for us. Um, and it's fine on occasion, but you definitely don't want to be eating that for breakfast, you know, like just from a brain function perspective. I, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure she, I'm sure your client that you walked through that process of changing her breakfast, like just having that brain fog gone, I'm sure, you know, was a huge thing for her. Um, but yeah, really getting people to understand just like as much as possible, real food, like real whole food that, you know, that comes from the ground or comes from an animal, like start there and, and really, yeah, like the, the fat and the protein that being, you know, making sure you get that in every meal and then throw whatever kind of veggie you can in, you know, greens are a plus. Yeah. Yeah. Those simple things and getting people and the, in the, like the dinner for breakfast idea, you know, that's what I'll tell a lot of people just like flip that switch, you know, and you feel better. Yeah. It's so, so true. I know. And you know, it's so interesting because I'm in Mexico at the moment, like, you know, I've told you this and I, I haven't eaten a single processed anything in mm-hmm. weeks since I've been here. There's yeah. a lot of processed food here, but it's not, I just, for whatever reason, just, we haven't, there's been no crackers with like, you know, it's no snacky things at all. And trust me, lived on lots of snacks while writing this damn book, but <laughs> yeah, you know, like, but I really haven't. And it is amazing. Like in a, two weeks, I've literally dropped like six pounds, which is Mm. unbelievable. Maybe because also I'm not as stressed as I was over the last six months, but still like it is incredible ladies, seriously, how much your diet can shift your life in just two weeks. And when you think about, you know, supportive supplements as well, there's a lot. I mean, there are so much. Like when I think about you know, when, if you were to just even incorporate some beans into your diet, granted, if you're allergic to them or you don't believe necessarily in how beans, um, you know, are digested in our bodies based on paleo beliefs or anything like that, I get it. But just like some, just some black beans. I mean, they contain a lot of different B vitamins. Mm -hmm. B6 in particular has been shown to actually improve PMS and PMDD. And in fact, this is done because these nutrients support your body's, um, your liver detoxification, which is your body's ability to uh, detox excess hormones. So it is really incredible. You know, when you think about just like the lowly black bean. Yeah. You know, it's got these nutrients in it that will support this process. And so I always come back to the fact that, you know, it really is a multifaceted, all hands on deck approach. You you can't just eat the same thing over and over again. Uh, You really have to bring in a number of different foods that are going to support this process. Right. And tune into how your body's responding to them too, right? Like, if you tune in, it'll tell you pretty quickly, usually, you know, you don't have to do a ton of like testing in order to figure out what isn't working for your body, you know? So, yeah. So I want to definitely dive into supplements here in a second, but can you talk a little bit about um, gut health? Because I, you know, I don't necessarily know that everybody 
kind of fully understands what we mean when we're talking about gut health and how that relates to hormones. Yes. I'm so glad you asked this. Um, and you know, I talked to you a little bit before about, uh, gut inflammation potentially resulting in brain inflammation because of what's known as the gut brain axis, which is the correspondence between the gut and the brain and it's bi-directional. So something that's happening in the gut can influence the, bl- the brain um, and something that's happening in the brain can influence the gut. And so it's, you know, it's interesting Like when you think about being super stressed, you either have diarrhea or constipation. Uh, that's, you know, one sign. It's also, you know, when you think about getting bad news, you feel, immediately feel like a pit in your stomach. That is that brain, gut brain access and the communication between the two. And um, so, you know, I think like what we need to understand is that there, I, I feel like we're in an epidemic, right? We've, we're in a gut health crisis epidemic. And we, generally speaking, um, just in the research I've been doing, like the share volume of research for this book, what, you know, what continues to come to light is the fact that uh, gut dysbiosis, which for anyone who does not know what that is, basically that is when the, your gut bacteria are not playing nice anymore with each other. So there is some problems there. Um, and then leaky gut, which means that the intestinal barrier, so it's only one cell thick, which is crazy, uh, plus a little mucus lining, um, has become inappropriately leaky, right? As Chris Kresser will say, he's like, it's supposed to be kind of leaky, but not too leaky. And so you get to the point where two large particles are being released into your bloodstream. So both of these trigger, uh, you know, all kinds of problems, but one is like a continual sort of immune reaction, right? So think of your immune system just waiting right on the other side of that intestinal lining. And what's happening is uh, your immune system, those little soldier guys, they're basically there to attack anything that, that passes through that's not supposed to be in your bloodstream. And that's an immune response. Every single day, that immune response potentially becomes an autoimmune response, and that's like an autoimmune condition. And so everyone knows those. There are rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis or anything that ends with IS, basically, which means inflammation. And so that's really what it comes down to, right, is this unseen somewhat unknown inflammation that's occurring in our bodies. It's not the same as like if you were to get a big cut on your leg, right? And you've got, you know, it's like, it's all red and bloody and it's inflamed. Right. right. It's, but it's, well, it sort of is like that. It's just <laughs> happening inside and you don't really know. It can go on for years. And so I think that that's the root of all of this. Like mm-hmm. I, I always think back to that, you know, once I started to get my gut health under control, I, my life completely transformed. I mean, from PMS symptoms to period pain to chronic yeast infections and bacterial vaginosis. I mean, girl, I had it all. So I feel like, you know, it really was life altering. And that's, you know, what I continually come back to with, with women who are experiencing all of these symptoms is that if your if your gut's inflamed, it's very likely that your brain is inflamed too. And if your brain's inflamed, you're going to experience these cyclical symptoms at a heightened level. And so once we start to think about chewing our food, getting testing to figure out what is happening, is our gut, is there dysbiosis? Do we have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Do we have a parasite? Do we have candida overgrowth? What is going on in our gut? And then really taking a, you know, a functional medicine or a holistic approach to addressing every stage of our gut health, whether it's, you know, from 
chewing our food, our oral health, our stomach, are we producing enough stomach acid to break down said food? <laughs> All this great food that we're eating, it has to be broken down. Yeah. And then what's happening with the microbiota in, you know, in the small and large intestine. So it's, you know, it's a multifaceted approach, but I really think that that's, you know, it's, it's life altering. Yeah. And, you know, I've kind of focused on gut health in a lot of these interviews, just asking about it, because I think so many women don't really understand that connection between their hormones and their gut. And that, you know, when, when clients come to me, I'm always like, okay, we have to start with your gut health (laughs) before we dive into, you know, anything really around your hormones, especially like, do we need to do testing right off the bat? Maybe not because we want to get your gut working properly, making sure that, you know, A, you can digest all your food. I just heard recently like 80% or more of people suffer from hypochloridia, which is, you know, low stomach acid. And it's like, if that doesn't work, the whole rest of the system is not going to work properly, right? And you've got your astrobolome, the part of your microbiome that processes estrogen to get it out of your body. If that ain't working right, then boom, you've got estrogen recycling in your body too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, can you tell us just a little bit about the liver impact? Because that's another thing that I think, you know, a lot of women necessarily know. Oh my God. Our poor livers. I swear to God. I mean, it's just like crazy when you think about the liver. Yeah. So the liver, our livers are, I feel very underappreciated. I do not appreciate my poor liver. And I'm one of these people who does not have great detoxification genes either. So my genes that are responsible for helping this detoxification process don't work that great. A few of them are MTHFR. That's one that we all hear about a lot. And then the other one is COMT, C-O-M-T. Uh, which is, I'll talk about that in a second. That's part of the phase two of liver detoxification. But so when we think about our livers, you know, and detoxification generally, I think we all think of green juices and going on a fast or something like that, but it's not really that. Your liver is detoxing all day, every day. And it even has its own blood circulation system. It's called the portal system. It's quite amazing, actually. It's this whole complex uh, process. And just a reminder for everyone watching, like your body is so unbelievable. It is working so hard for you. And it gets the food scraps sometimes, and it's still just trying its dent. It's like, I'm going to get you better. (laughs) I know, exactly. So it's just like, even if you don't want to make the change, just try making the change for your poor liver. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. So, okay. So phase one and phase two of liver detoxification is what we want to be focused on when it comes to estrogen detoxification. There's a phase three, which you just mentioned, which is in the gut. And that's got to do with the estrobolome. So phase one, we have this, um, you know, we have this process, which basically uh, takes all of these very toxic chemicals and your hormones and things like that as well and breaks them down into sort of the intermediary uh, toxins, so to speak. And so with your hormones, what's happening is estrogen in particular is being broken down into three metabolites. We've got uh, 2-OH, 4-OH, and 16-OH. I'd say the names, but they're long and complicated. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, OH, okay, got it. OH, 2, 4, and 6. So just think of the 2, 4, 6 pathways. And then in phase two, uh, what's happening is uh, 16-OH is taken and it's turned into estriol, which is another type of estrogen. And then 2-OH and 4-OH are transformed in that second half of detoxification or in phase two, and they're turned into a, 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 another type of estrogen, right? So another sort of breakdown or metabolite. And that's then packed it off and sent to the gut. So these are now broken down, right? So in phase two, it's fully broken down. 
and your gut now receives this fully broken down estrogen. And then what happens is the estrobilome, like you were talking about, they are responsible for just like further processing and removal, right? So it's like unceremoniously dumped <laughs> in the toilet is what's supposed to happen because um, Sarah Gottfried says that she talks about estrogen as a use it and lose it hormone. And so the idea with estrogen is that your body uses it. It's great. Awesome. And then it really is meant to just be sent. Right. Exactly. Down as Carrie Jones says, the sewer pipe. And so, um, you know, like when you think about all of these phases, right, this is a very intricately orchestrated process. So if you're, your phase one and phase two need specific nutrients, right? They need huge amounts of antioxidants. They need a lot of water. So drink up. Um, they need a lot of B vitamins. They need all kinds of, of different vitamins and minerals and nutrients. And so if they're not getting those nutrients, so if there's, you know, it's like almost like a crack in the pipe, for instance, and you don't have the stuff to, to fix the crack in the pipe. And so it causes problems, right? There's leaks, there's issues. And so it's the same thing, right? Your phases don't have these nutrients. And so they're sort of just trying to make do with what they've got. And then what happens is these estrogens are not broken down properly. So they're potentially recirculated from your liver. And then in your gut, if you have um, too high beta-glucuronidase, you may, which is, you know, a compound that basically turns all of those neatly packaged estrogens back into, uh, you know, estrogen that can be used. And then they leave your poor gut. Your gut's yeah. like, all right, I can't do anything with this. I got to <laughs> send it back out into. <laughs> I know. So like you said, estrogen recycling, it's totally that. And then you end up in a situation where you've got more estrogen circulating than you originally had, which is annoying. And it just builds on itself. And it just gets worse as we get older because, we just become less resilient, unfortunately. I mean, like you can, you just need to do, you need to work harder in order for your liver to work better in yeah. your, in your thirties and forties for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, you know, in my own experience, you know, with a fibroid and yeah. that's something that I tell women that are dealing with fibroids, like definitely you got to get your gut health together. You've got to, you know, work on your insulin. But for me, I was like, you know, I, I ate, I was paleo, I was, um, I mean, my digestion was good in terms of what you normally would think of with people. And I realized over the long term, it was my liver. Like, I think I probably, I haven't, I haven't done um, genetic testing to find out about, you know, my, my detox, but I, yeah. I, I'm almost positive it was really about my liver because I was having literal liver pains when I would drink alcohol. I actually quit alcohol for oh. a year because of that. Yeah. And that was like, uh, you know, maybe half a year before the fibroid started. And so yeah. the, I, re, I just kind of point at the importance of taking yeah. care of your liver, because even if you feel like your gut's working well, you know, and that you're eating well, you're low sugar, like there's this other aspect. And like you said, alcohol can have a huge impact and more as we age, unfortunately, <laughs> it's just a reality. Every woman I know over 40 is like, why can't I even drink a glass of wine anymore? And I'm like, you know, but I, I, I believe in a lot of ways it's actually pushing us to be sort of the next level of ourselves too. And I know yeah. it's hard when you're in it because you're like, but I always used to be this fun person that could do these things, you know, but there's um, so much growth and beauty that can come from kind of letting that old crutch go, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it's our bodies being like, well, who do you want to be now, you know? And I want you to do as well as you can for this next like stage of your life. So it's time to make a couple of sometimes hard choices sometimes, you know. 
Oh, I know. It's so hard. I completely agree. I, you know, it's funny. Alcohol is not really my thing, but sugar was definitely my thing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, so I, I feel like it's usually one or the other (laughs) because at the end of the day, right, they have the same effect on your body, right? They'll raise your blood sugar. You'll make you feel so great. Alcohol has the added benefit of making you feel totally uninhibited. I can take on the world. (laughs) But yes, it's so true that when you think about your liver on and you, you know, if it's too much alcohol or it's a prescription drug or whatever it is, or you know, too high levels of BPA or any of these environmental toxins that have been introduced into our environment in the last 50 to 60 years, all of these are gonna take precedence, right? Because they are the most harmful to your body. So your liver is always going to be focused on those first. And so your hormones will take a back seat. And so this is why, you know, we have to be so diligent about about these these different um, foods or beverages that we're consuming because they are potentially going to mess with your hormones on that level as well, right? Your liver just prioritizes more dangerous things. And yeah, it becomes a real problem. I mean, not only for your hormones, but you start to think about your mood and you think about your sleep and, you know, we talk about in our forties, right? Like you don't get a whole lot of sleep anymore or your sleep is just not as deep. I was just talking to Jessica Drummond the other day and she was like, that's the one thing I miss about being 22, you know, <laughs> miss the fact that I can sleep through the phone ringing. I mean, you know, <laughs> exactly. oh, yeah. those days. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Right. It's just, but, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I think I'm glad that you brought up just, um, all these things that we have to deal with now too, that we didn't necessarily have to deal with 50 or 60 years ago, because I know you've worked with plenty of women who are in their twenties and they are having these issues that usually women didn't necessarily have until 20 years later. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, and so it's like, it, it doesn't matter what age you are, like, this is good for everyone, you know? So <laughs> yeah. So, it's like a notification on my computer that just went right. really loud. No, Sorry. Yes. Keep going. <laughs> Um, no, I, you know, yeah, it's just, um, it's, that's what I love about this conversation with you is that like, you know, you can be 18 and have these PMS symptoms and really, you know, focus on all the things that we've talked about, focus on, you know, where your blood sugar is at, your gut, your liver. And then we didn't have a chance to really go into thyroid and adrenals, but you know, those are also, those will be impacted in the changes that you make with those first three, right? And then really that is going to set you up for a much better situation when you're late thirties, early forties and cruise on to into menopause. Right. Um, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. A hundred percent. When you think about it, right. Like I think that that's really, it's such an important point you've just brought up and I know we're running late on time, but I just feel like what you said about the fact that all the hormones are talking to each other. There's a whole conversation happening on on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis. And the fact that, you know, we can't continue to look at all of these organs and systems in our bodies in isolation, like they're all in communication. And so of course, like you said, your adrenals, of course, they're affected by your blood sugar too, ladies. Mm-hmm. And so is your thyroid, uh, thyroid is affected by excess estrogen. So there's, you know, all of this complex interplay that we need to take into consideration. And that's why I think women are so confused by the terms hormonal imbalance or imbalanced hormones, because ultimately it just feels like, oh my God, there's so much happening. Where do I even begin? And like we were saying, blood sugar, or at least starting to just look at that and look at how the nutrients you are actually getting, like keep a food diary for a week and see what you actually are eating. Cause we, we love to gloss this over. We love oh, to it's amazing, right? how amazing our diet is. <laughs> I mean, 
I'll talk to a client. They're like, oh, yeah, no, I eat pretty well. And I'm like, all right, we're going to do a three-day diet. And then they're like, oh, I was, it was just a weird time. I don't normally eat like this literally every time, you know? I know. Like, it's no shame right because we've all been there I'm like I'm the first to talk all about how great my diet is and absolutely and then you're like oh I ate that thing there and yeah grabbed that little snack there yeah it's it's amazing but I know um, so I could go on forever with you because there's like so many things you know and I know um everybody would benefit so much but um I wanted to thank you again just for being here with me today and sharing your wisdom and knowledge and you know, like I said earlier, it's just amazing how many women's lives that you've impacted with this. And I really see you and some of the other women that you have mentioned during, you know, this interview that they're, you guys are leading the way towards really not only empowering women, but like actually having them feel better, live better lives and be able to go out into the world and do what they are meant to do. Right. Because that's kind of what to me like getting healthy is about in a lot of ways like when you feel good then you can do your work in the world right Mm -hmm. and you help other people in that way and so um you know we need we needed a revolution and you guys are here like leading it (laughs) so I appreciate that greatly and I know all the women listening also feel the same way so tell them how they can get in touch with you and you know any projects that you have coming up Yes. So everyone can find me on my website. It's NicoleJardim.com forward slash blog. If you want to check out my blog. And of course you mentioned the period party. So that's the podcast that I co-host with my dear friend, Nat Kringudis and my Australian period. Australian girl. <laughs> right? I know exactly. And so, you know, we have tons of episodes. I think we're at like 160 at this point. So there's a lot of episodes there. Yeah. And then, um, I, you know, you can also, like I said, on my site, you can go take my period quiz. So that's a great way to kind of figure out what might be going on, uh, or at least start to figure out what's going on. And then uh, I'm, I've just finished, we have mentioned this, writing a book, which is coming out in, August, uh, sorry, April 28th, I think. Yeah, April 28th of 2020. Maybe We're a little <laughs> <laughs> <Plan> right now. <laughs> See how edits go. Um, But yeah, so that's entitled Fix Your Period. And that really is so much about of this protocol. It includes a six-week protocol on how to fix your period problem. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? That's the goal. I mean, like I, you know, I, I, like we were saying, right, you can definitely spot treat, right? You can take some magnesium and you can take these different supplements and you can try a few, a little few food changes and whatnot. But at the end of the day, some of us just need a bit of an overhaul. And so that was really what I was going for with the book. Yeah. Awesome. That's so incredible because you know that, like we said earlier, it's like, I love, I love people to actually understand the science of it. And then, oh, yeah. like, we also got to give the protocol, right? Because people are like, okay, I need to, like, change things. So what do I do? So it's mm-hmm. really exciting that this book is coming out. Thank you for sharing that with the world. And uh, I know it's been like birthing a baby, right? Like, that's what they say. So then you get to watch it grow. So hopefully that will be a wonderful experience. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. Absolutely. All right. Thank you guys so much for being here for day three. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for some more awesome interviews. We're still getting into um, hormone lab testing, which can be helpful if you um, need a little help figuring out what's going on and some other great stuff. So I will see you guys tomorrow. Bye.